This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, we are continuing our um, exploration, how best to describe this, our exploration of the image of God in us. We believe, we have been taught, and it resonates with us from Scripture that God made us of the essence of God. So we have the image of God within us, and that image of God is indicated by these characteristics, these things that we have classically for years called virtues. And so we are looking through the summer months at different virtues, and today we're going to look at the virtue that we know as love. I know of nowhere better to start, and I think as long as you're using classic texts like Scripture, it's not cliched, but it might feel cliched for some of you, but I, I don't think there's anywhere better to start on the subject of love than with the famed 13th chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We call it 1 Corinthians, and most of us grew up hearing it in the formal Old English of the King James Version of the Bible, but I want you to look at it with me in uh, a translation that I use almost more than any other translation, honestly, and that's the contemporary English version. For those of you that are always interested in what's a good version, uh, I love the contemporary English version. So look at 1 Corinthians 13. And we'll read all of it. What if I could speak all languages of humans and even of angels? If I did not love others, I would be nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What if I could prophesy, speak for God? That's lofty stuff. What if I could prophesy and understand all mysteries? And I understood all knowledge. And what if I had faith that moved mountains? Not just if I attained per an external standard, some level of excellence, but even within the realm of religion, if I was making A's across the board, things like enlightenment and knowledge and faith, if I made an A in all of those areas, I would be nothing, Paul said, unless I loved other people. This is almost ridiculous in nature uh, to think of, but I've mentioned before Maimonides, the 11th century uh, Hebrew philosopher and theologian, has a list of eight levels of giving. You should look it up sometime. Maimonides on levels of giving. The ability to give without that giving actually being virtuous, all the way down to agape, the fullest nature, the fullest, most loving form of giving. Paul strikes at that here. He says, what if I gave away all that I owned? What if I allowed myself to be a martyr? There is the potential to enter into martyrdom for reasons other than those that we esteem virtuous. We see that all the time in this world. What if I let myself be burned alive? I would gain nothing. It doesn't amount to a hill of beans unless I loved others. I mean, the point's pretty clear. If you don't get love for others right and get everything else right, you're still wrong, right? Love 
now, he said, let me just describe this virtue. And we notice in Paul's description of love, the truth of all the virtues, that they are so inextricably linked that almost every virtue is a composite of a few other virtues. And they're born of one another, and they, are, um, they yield one another. And Paul speaks to that by saying this virtue of love is actually very patient. True love is kind. Boy, kindness goes a long way. That's a lost virtue in a hustle and bustle world where we're all trying to make our own way. Just simple kindness is refreshing. Love is patient and kind. It's never jealous. Love's not boastful. It's not proud. It's not rude. Love isn't selfish. It's not quick-tempered. Anybody convicted yet? It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love has a short memory as it relates to other people's failures. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs that others do. Love is so excited about truth, not evil. Love can't stand gossip and love hates bad news. Love is not voyeuristic. Love doesn't gloat or feel gratified by other people's diminishment. Love rejoices in the truth, but not in evil. Love can't stand the National Enquirer. Does that still exist? Does any of you work for that publication? Don't answer. I'm sorry. Love is always supportive. Love's always loyal, hopeful. Love is trusting, believes the best about people, hopes the best about people. Love never fails. My old mentor, Brother Hardwick, told me that his mother-in-law used to again and again tell him, she called her son-in-law, this is the old Pentecostal church I grew up in, she called him Brother Hardwick when he was a 20-year-old kid preacher. But when he would be so exasperated at people and stuff in the church, she would shake her head and say, Brother Hardwick, if love can't win it, it can't be won. If love can't do it, it won't be done. Love never fails. Looks like it a lot of time in the immediate, but long term, love never fails. It's not a quick antidote. It's a long term, effectual one. Now the folk who prophesy, the, the spiritual giants that he referred to earlier, the folks who prophesy, that'll stop. Unknown languages will no longer be spoken. All that we know, the stuff that creates the caste systems of knowledge and makes us feel one up on the other, all of that will be forgotten. We don't know everything, and our prophecies are not complete, but what is perfect will someday appear. One of these days we're going to get to that thing called the kingdom of God, and Paul Tillich said here and there, now and then, we even see it in ourselves a little bit. 
But what is perfect will someday appear and what isn't perfect will then disappear. When we were children, we thought and reasoned as children do. We had all of those caste systems and pecking orders and one-upsmanship and selfishness and greed and jealousy and insecurities. But when we grew up, boy, I wish that was a one-time process, but that is a long healing journey. When we grew up, we quit. I would rather say we are quitting our childish behaviors, our childish... Now, verse 12 says, all we can see of God is like a cloudy picture in a mirror. Later, we will see God face to face, but we don't know everything. But then we will know just as God completely knows and understands us. But here, there's faith, hope, and love. And of these three, if you got faith, hope, and love, if you gotta, if you gotta have one, take love with you to the desert island. M. Scott Peck defined love as the desire and the willingness to extend oneself for the purpose of benefiting or nurturing another life. Listen to that. Love is the desire and the willingness to extend oneself for the purpose of benefiting or nurturing somebody else. The Nazarene theologian that I've read a good bit of, Thomas J. Ord, he gives this definition of love as Jesus taught it. He said, love as Jesus knew it and espoused it is a degree of care which promotes the well-being of another person unconditionally, even when treated in the opposite way by the one you are loving. You can conjure up in your mind quickly now Jesus' treatment of those who spitefully used him and his enjoining us to love our enemies and those who cursed us. Unconditional love, we call it, or referred to it. Um, agape is the Greek word of choice for the New Testament writers as they were looking within their own lexicon for a word to describe God's love, the love that Jesus lived and espoused, and, and literally the love as God's children that we have the capacity for, original virtue, these things, this is the image of God embedded in you. This love, this unconditional love that Ord spoke of, that Peck spoke of, that Jesus taught, it acknowledges several things, and I want to just kind of sequentially go through five of them, build a logical case, at least as I see it. It's logical to me. Agape, or unconditional love, acknowledges, number one, the other. And that's an important word, the other, the one sitting beside you, the other, your neighbor, your child, and even your enemy. You remember Jesus talking about, if you only love those who love you, congratulations. You've done no better than the hypocrite. It's easy to love those who love you. But Jesus said, when you find a way to love those who don't love you and are hurtful towards you, Jesus said, then you begin to appear like God in heaven. And people begin to say, that's a child of God. The other, my neighbor, my child, my enemy. Every human, love acknowledges that every human is created by God in the image of God. Everybody you meet, now think about that, everybody's a big word. Can you think of somebody right now that tests this in your life? Everyone has eternal worth 
Everyone has infinite value. Now, I've got to tell you this. Everyone may not be immediately beneficial to your day. Everyone may not be immediately advantageous. But if the way we treat people is based upon their immediate impact in our life and is the net effect that they've done something good for me today, that's called commoditizing people. We talk about objectifying other people, sexualizing other people. That's a big issue today is, as exploitation and pornography now is such a rampant evil industry and it's at the fingertips of every human and every child and is so anonymous and so affordable. We talk about objectifying, taking another human being and turning them into nothing more, diminishing their soul until all they are, John, is what they can mean for me in this immediate moment. That's not love. That's using people. Now, it can look incredibly passionate because a drowning person will cling passionately to a life jacket, but that kind of love, we all know that kind of love. That's the love that Scripture, that the Greeks called eros. It's an upward-reaching love. It's a need-based love. It's, it's not a lot stronger than my love for peach cobbler. But then there's this other love, this agape love that reaches down and says this is not about commoditizing. And, and it's interesting that using something, using is the root word of abusing. Using's not far from abusing. But the first thing that love acknowledges is that every human being, every human being has eternal worth and infinite value, though not immediately to my carnal eye, immediately beneficial or advantageous. Second thing that love, true love acknowledges is I acknowledge that measureless worth in another human being by caring for, by being concerned about, by truly in my heart knowing that I desire your well-being. How do you love your enemy? The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 12. He said, don't be overcome by evil. And evil is an over thing to be overcome by. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't return curse for curse, but return the curse with a blessing. And literally, to love is to desire the well-being of the other, and that includes your enemy. Can I set back and wish for the one who has hurt me blessing? The third thing that love does is after desiring and acknowledging my concern and care for the other, I act practically, and let me put it plainly, I act physically in accordance with that desire. And my, ex my internal sense of concern for your well-being is matched by my external fruit because it is easy to talk about love and it's easy to claim a sense of desire and concern for the other, but the proof is in the pudding. Jesus told, or rather John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit that's meat for repentance, that justifies your state. Prove it. 
Paul told the Corinthians, he said, you promised that you were going to give an offering for your starving brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Now is the time for that offering. And he literally said, I am putting your love to the test. Was it true? Or was it just a lot of noise with pretty music accompanying it? Fourth thing is, after I act physically, practically, externally, I do this, this is where it starts getting tougher, I do this regardless of your disposition towards me, regardless of your consciousness of or your response to. Dorothy Day, the great Christian, Catholic Christian who went to New York in the 40s and 50s and started the social workers movement there that still persists to this day as a model for the world. And those from a background of social work know who Dorothy Day is. Dorothy Day said, I watched hundreds and thousands of people, young and old, come to New York to work with me with the marginalized and the hurting. And Steve, she said, I watched them come and I watched most of them quickly go. Many of them came only to appease and assuage their own sense of guilt. And they ended up using the marginalized for themselves to assuage. And once their guilt was assuaged, they were done and they were back home. And she said, I watched so many of them hurt by the people that we were ministering to. She said, because somehow they didn't understand that poverty was not just something that concerns money, but poverty is pervasive. And many of the people that we were ministering to there, many of the children were not only poor in food and money, but they were poor in enlightenment and learning and capacity. They were poor in every way. And so she said famously, give only if you're a person for whom the giving is its own reward. Oh, say that again. Give only if you're a person for whom the giving is its own reward. Give expecting nothing in return. True love is to love regardless of the disposition of the other toward me, regardless of their consciousness, their response, even if you do not see my worth. I see yours and I act accordingly. Oh, how difficult that is to not have that extrinsic locus of control and to treat people the way I think they feel about me. No, I must treat them the way I feel about them and I must feel about them the way God feels about them. They are a priceless child of God of inestimable worth. Oh, I didn't say this stuff was easy. This is the real stuff though. This is the stuff, though, that Jesus said, if you, if you get the whole book and don't get this, you didn't get the whole book, because if you really got the whole book, you'd realize that the cliff notes are this, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. All else is wasted ink once you get that. All else is commentary. And, and finally, the last thing that love does is I experience your benefit. Uh, this is what Day was talking about. I experience your benefit as mine. Your loss is my loss. True love is born out of this level of enlightenment that Jesus led us to that literally allows me to see you as a part of me, not even as the other. I end up seeing you as a part of me, and upon seeing you as a part of me, I understand what Paul meant by calling us the body of Christ. I see you as a part of me, and ultimately I see us as a part of God. 
Interestingly, I was looking to a, a very recent edition, actually, on my shelf of the Random House Unabridged Dictionary, and the definition that Jesus just gave and, and that most spiritual sages from all corners of the world give, um, that definition has kind of fallen on hard times and has moved way down the list. Here's Random House's list of the definition of love. Number one, a profoundly tender, passionate affection or affinity or liking for another person. That's that thing we call falling in love, right? Infatuation. Two, a feeling of warm personal attachment or deep affection. That's nice. Three, sexual passion or desire. You knew it wouldn't take long to get there. Four, a person toward whom love is felt. They are my love. A term of endearment, five, used in direct address. Six, a love affair, an intensely amorous incident. Anybody ever had an intensely love, amorous incident? Don't raise your hand. I hope you have. Not an affair, a love affair. You get what I'm saying, right? We, we are not polyamorous around here, regardless of what you've heard. <laughs> we believe in monogamy and fidelity. Is that clear? Can I move on? <laughs> We're in a season of disclaimers right now. We will soon be out of it. <laughs> Seven, sexual relationship. Eight, a personification of sexual affection with a capital L. Nine, finally, nine, genuine concern, genuine concern for the well-being of another. How did that get to number nine? And I got to ask myself, is it number nine in my life? Twelve, the twelfth one, I'll skip 10 and 11, the twelfth one is the benevolent affection of God for God's creatures or the reverent affection from them to God. Number 10, before number 12, God's love, number 10 was strong enthusiasm for any, anything, parentheses, like books, movies, or potato salad. <laughs> wow. Now listen, I affirm the legitimacy of all of those sentiments. Those were legitimate sentiments. I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with those sentiments. I think the challenge is using the same word. It's no wonder the Greeks had four words that we translate love. C.S. Lewis writes prolifically about that in his book, Four Loves. We, most of us know the three in the New Testament, eros, phileo, or uh, brother, um, brotherly love, Philadelphia, and agape. But we use the same word love for potato salad and God. We use the same love for blackberry cobbler and our child. And, and I'm not going to decry that. I just want to point out that that's a challenge. I'm going to continue saying that I love Marie Callender's Razzleberry Pie. I'm going to continue saying that I love driving on a cool night with Paul Davis playing and the windows down. Anybody catch what I just did there? Paul Davis, cool night, just let me hold you, right? Are you cultured? 
I go crazy when I look in your eyes, Paul Davis, right? Oh. <laughs> 70s were a good decade. I will continue loving books and golf. Quickly now. I have to, though, if I don't make the distinction with my words, I have to make the distinction somewhere in my soul that there is something deeper than something beyond attraction, intense affinity, strong liking, a satisfied palate, being drawn to those things that satisfy and please me. I've got to make a distinction somewhere between that and this thing that draws us out into the lives, this thing that takes a group of people on a bus down to Florida that they just got off of last night at midnight, ministering to people who have hurt them and others deeply. There is a deep soulish recognition that inherent in those others who do not, for varied reasons, those who do not draw my attention positively, those who do not appeal to my senses as pleasurable, those who do not strike my liking as beneficial, there has to be a deep soulless recognition that inherent in them is a worth and a belovedness and inestimable value because they like you and they like I were created in the image of God and are the child of God. Thich Nhat Han, the wonderful Vietnamese teacher, author, poet, peace activist, if you have not read him, read him. He's 89 and he's still writing. But this wonderful Vietnamese man says these four things about love. He says, you can, number one, you can only love another when you feel true love for yourself. And I can hear that Tim McGraw song playing in my mind. One of these days, I'm going to love you. Or one of these days, you're going to love me. Does anybody remember that? Remember that, John? One of these days, you're going to love me. The little boy that was bullied. And as he walks down the road, shoulders slumped, he looks over at the laughing cadre of other boys and he says wistfully, one of these days you're going to love me. The teenage girl standing in the rain, pregnant, left alone. As the boy goes off acting like nothing's ever happened and the girl with slumped heart whispers, one of these days you're going to love me. And the little boy that was the bully and the little boy that left her in the rain grows up in the final verse. What a song. He's standing in church and the hymn sings over him and he finally has the born again experience. He comes to the epiphany and he sings, one of these days I'm going to love me because that was the problem all along. Jesus knew what he was saying when he said, love your neighbor. And we said, how do we do that? And he said, oh, that's easy. As you love yourself. Thikot Nan said, you can only love another when you truly love yourself. Secondly, to the degree you understand, to the degree you understand, to that degree you love. 
I want to say that again. To the degree you understand, to that degree you love. With all thy getting, get understanding. There is some depth of understanding that is beyond us yet within us that allows crucified people to say, forgive them. And when all of heaven rings out with the question, why? Jesus whispers through parched, bloodied, broken lips. They don't know what they're doing. Oh. To the degree you understand, to that degree you love. Thirdly, Hans said, the proof of true understanding is true love, and the proof of true love is compassion. And fourthly, the proof of true compassion is deep listening. The proof of true compassion is deep listening, not just to their words, but listening to their life. Mel, you and Ron, you don't go down to talk, you go down to listen. And in the listening, ah, uh, in the listening, there is deep connection and then comes caring speech and action. In love, we see how the virtues are so inextricably linked, for in love, we see first the need for wisdom, the ability to see things as they are, and then we see the virtues of kindness and generosity and patience and long-suffering and mercy and the like. We see all of those as branches coming out of love. Love, like wisdom, is born of enlightenment, and Jesus called this ongoing lifelong process the process of new birth or being born again. And if you remember Pastor Melissa's insight from a few weeks ago regarding this, and I have thought about it since, Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, unless you're born from above, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't see it. Unless you get new eyes, you just can't see it. You can't understand it. And then Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he said, you guys think the kingdom is out there or over there or here or beyond us? He said, the kingdom of God is within you. But unless you're born again, you can't see it. Even the stuff inside of you. And then Jesus continued with Nicodemus when Nicodemus asked the brilliant question, a brilliant question that's at the heart of our capacity for true transformation. Jesus looked at Nicodemus and Nicodemus said how can a man who is old be born oh because all of life is your gestation all of life is the womb how do you teach an old dog new tricks is transformation truly possible Will Rogers said people change but not much can we really measurably change Jesus' answer was yes, we really can change, but we have to be born from above, or more appropriately, we have to be born from beyond, or maybe most appropriately, we have to be born from within, because that's where the kingdom of God has always been. And with new eyes, you'll see it, and having seen it, Jesus told Nicodemus, then you'll enter it. And so our prayer today as we conclude is that we might see as God sees. The prayer for new birth is for new eyes and a new heart and new understanding. Han goes on to say, if you pour a handful of salt into a cup of water, 
handful of salt into a little cup of water, the water becomes undrinkable. But if you pour that same amount of salt into a river, people can continue to draw the water to cook, wash, and drink because the river is so large. The river has the capacity to take the same handful of salt, receive, embrace, and transform it. So when our hearts are small, the salt that comes into our life is large. When our hearts are small and our understanding is small, our compassion is limited and we suffer sore at the hands of others and we return their suffering to them. When our hearts are small, we can't accept or tolerate others and their shortcomings and we know our only duty in life is to demand that they change, but when our hearts expand, the same salt comes and these things don't make us suffer anymore. Han simply said, we have a lot of understanding and compassion and we can finally embrace others. We accept others as they are and only when we accept them and the river of our wide heart loves them, only then do they have a chance to transform in the presence of us. So, we have so many new people, Barbara, I can't help but tell. Years ago, when I offered some of my friends a handful of salt, they responded accordingly. And one of my friends that I handed a handful of salt to was Barbara, who's now a wonderful counselor at our church. And we were estranged, and it was appropriate because I was even estranged for myself. But one day, long story short, Barbara showed up in my life, and she handed me a slip of paper as best I remember it. And I remember when I first saw her, my heart sank. And when she handed me the piece of paper, I, I shook it, hoping there wasn't white dust on it or anything. But when I unfurled it, it said, a widened heart sees others with hope and possibility as opposed to seeing them through the lens of a severe, loveless accuracy. Oh, did you hear that? How do you see people? With a widened heart? Oh, that's lovely, isn't it? Ooh, that's lovely. How do you see people with a widened heart or a severe, loveless accuracy? So the question, Han says, is how do we help our hearts grow? Oh, I used to think that was easy. Just listen to me. That's what most of us think. We'll help one another, right? Convince one another. Ridiculous. I don't know of any other way for hearts to be widened than for you just to take your journey with life. And I am so satisfied now to know that I can do little more than come as a midwife alongside that process, but I cannot create life for you. I can beg you to go on a prison tour. I can beg you to sit down with a transgender kid who's wrestling with suicidal thoughts. I can beg you, 
to go with Steve and Beetlejuice and Bob down to work with homeless folk. I can beg you to try to put you in areas. As Nina complained about food yesterday, I, I wanted to show her again a picture of what starving children looked like, I, but I cannot widen anybody's heart. But life can. And I would just suggest to all of us in the process of our hearts widening, talk a whole lot less, listen a whole lot more. And our prayer today, sweet Christ, is would you, could you, this week, widen our hearts a little more? I want to read this last little bit before I leave the stage. I read this years ago to our church, but give me three minutes to read this little note story. Philip Gully wrote and he said, I had forgotten all about the trays until I went to eat lunch with my son Levi the second week of school. I signed in at the office, walked down the hallway toward his classroom, passed the sixth grade hallway and heard Miss Fishbeck calling out words for a spelling bee. I listened as Amanda Hodge spelled the word methodical. The talk at the coffee cup was she might win the county spelling bee. My son's class was lined up in the hallway and Mrs. Hester marched us to the cafeteria where the ladies spooned out food and sections. We sat at the long table and it reminded me of a prison table where the convicts ate and planned their escapes. I was sandwiched between Levi, my son, and a little boy named Adam Fleming. My son had told me about Adam. He said Adam's name was always on the chalkboard at least once a day. He was always being sent to the principal's office two times already this week, and none of the kids liked him. He's a liar, my son reported. And once at recess, he kicked Billy Grant right in the stomach on purpose. I'm telling you, if he messes with me, my kindergarten, my first grader said, I'll karate chop him. What my son didn't know was the Flemings and Adam lived east of town in a trailer. Adam and his two little sisters and his parents had moved to town the year before. Adam's daddy, Wayne, worked nights at the Kroger, waxing the floors, and his mother labored at the McDonald's down near the interstate. What Adam didn't know was one early morning, or Ian, my son, didn't know was that Adam's daddy, Wayne, came home from work to find the kids asleep and his wife was gone. There was a note on the table that said, don't try to find me, I've gone away. The rumor was that she had met a trucker and had gone west with him. Our thoughts toward her were not charitable. The women from the meeting had been taking food out to the trailer and the lady who worked at the Kroger Deli let Wayne take home day-old bread and chicken wings that didn't sell. The nights were hardest when Wayne would tuck the children into bed and they would cry for their mommy. People said they were better off, but it didn't feel that way to Adam and his sisters. Their daddy never knew what to tell them, so he never said anything. He'd just hold them till they fell asleep, and then he'd tidy up the trailer, start the laundry, wash the dishes, and the retired neighbor lady would come sleep on the couch, and he would leave for the Kroger. I knew all about this. I was kind of their pastor since they'd come to our meeting the Easter before. I'd gone to visit them a time or two and had seen Wayne at Kroger when I'd go there late at night for ice cream. We took to visiting in the aisles and struck up kind of a friendship. When his wife ran off, he called to tell me. 
I mentioned their need to the friendly women's circle. It's a Quaker church where he pastored. They were casting about for a new project, and they decided to take on the Flemings. But as magnificent as those women were, they were still no replacement for Adam's mommy. And he and his sister still cried themselves to sleep. I told my son not to be so hard on Adam because Adam didn't have the blessings he had and to treat him nice. And now Adam was sitting next to Levi and me in the school cafeteria, and he said, my daddy sleeps in the daytime, so he can't come eat lunch like you. And I said, well, Adam, could I come next week and have lunch with you? Would you like that? And he said he would. Wouldn't be the same as his daddy, but he'd like it. And then he said, my mommy came to eat lunch with me yesterday. Have you met my mommy? She's a good mommy. She's real nice. She was just here hoping if he said it enough times, it'd make it true. I said, I don't know your mother well, but I bet she's nice. He said, she's real nice. And when I get home from school, she's got cookies for me, and she buys me lots of toys and anything I want. And a little girl across the table shrieked, he's lying, he's a liar. His mommy's gone, she runned off. Shut your face, Adam screamed and lunged at her. I grabbed hold of him, pulled him back, and he was shaken with rage. And he leaned into me and began to sob. The lunchroom monitor marched over, frowning, and she told Adam if he didn't settle down, he'd have to sit off by himself at the quiet table, and his name was going to be on the chalkboard when he got back to class. And I thought, this is the world's response to suffering. We want it out of sight. We want its name on a chalkboard. We want it over by itself at the quiet table because raw pain alarms us. We don't understand that life isn't as orderly as we hoped. We demand the pain settle down and we shuffle it off. We want it to stay in its own little section, just like that lunchroom tray that keeps everything from spilling over into the others. And I held Adam to me thinking of his mother, wondering if her joy in running off was worth all of this. I thought of Wayne having to teach his children they were still worth loving and worth having this was the world my pastor had warned me about, and I thought of the cold evil committed by folks looking to be happy. And I held that little boy to me, and I thought hopeful thoughts of a new world, a world where God has set up housekeeping, where he will wipe every tear from our eyes. I held that crying boy to me, and I thought my hopeful thoughts. Love. Born of understanding. This is the virtue that Paul said, if you can take one with you to a desert island and you can't get any of the others, get this one. Get this one. And love comes from understanding. Amen? Let me pray with you. Lord, thank you. Seal this in our hearts now and help us even this week to do better with love, born of understanding. We pray this in Christ's sweet name. And God's people said, amen.